This week, Jesus is going to meet a young man, um, and it's another tough story, another challenging teaching, but one that has impact and resonance for every single one of us, I believe. So let's jump right in. Matthew 19, starting at verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? There's a lot going on there already, right? This is a guy who is typically referred to as the rich young ruler. How many of you guys have heard of him as the rich young ruler at some point? What's interesting about that title is you actually don't get that title for him without combining a couple of different gospel accounts because we get those various details from different people. So Matthew is going to be the only gospel writer who tells us that he's young. And Luke is going to be the only gospel writer that tells us that he's a ruler. All of them will talk about the fact that he's rich, right? So this is a rich young ruler, but you only know that by combining a few different gospel accounts. It's kind of cool. And on the surface, this guy is incredibly impressive, especially if you add again some of the details you get from Mark. Mark tells us, Matthew just says that this man came up to him. Mark gives us some more details. He says that he actually ran to Jesus. And after running to Jesus, he knelt before him to ask him this question. So for a guy like this, who Luke tells us is a ruler and who we know is wealthy and likely influential, for him to run up to Jesus is a big deal. That shows a, a huge amount of, of desire to be with him, to talk to him, this enthusiasm, and then this humility of him as a ruler of some kind, probably a local synagogue ruler. For him to kneel before Jesus shows incredible humility. So what do we know about him? Like right off the bat, this dude's wealthy, he's young, he's morally upright, we're going to talk more about that in a minute, and he's got humility. He comes to Rabbi Jesus with a really good question. So I want you to kind of right off the bat here, resist the urge, especially if you're already familiar with this story, to think of this guy as kind of like, you know, he's, he acts like he's got it all together, but secretly there's some dark stuff going on. Nothing about the narrative presents him that way. He comes out humble, impressive. As Isaac has said before, this is the kind of guy who, if you have a, an adult daughter, you'd want, to, you'd want your daughter to marry somebody like this. He's got humility. He wants to learn from Jesus. Morally solid dude, financially successful. He's kind of got it all together. But he comes to Jesus with a really important question. I want to focus in on what he asked. He said, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, when a, a Jewish man in the first century says eternal life, he does not just mean that he wants to live forever. That phrase in Greek, especially in the mouth of a, a first century Jewish man, that means specifically he wants to live in the age to come. So he's thinking about the, the kind of future age that God is going to usher in after the present age has passed away. That's what that phrase means. So he goes, hey, I want to make sure that I have a place in whatever kingdom God is going to establish in the age to come. How do I get that? It's a good question. But you re it kind of reveals a lot about him the way he asks it. Because you notice he doesn't just say, how do I have eternal life or how do I get eternal life? He asks, what good deed must I do? What good deed must I do? And Jesus' response to this, it's so easy to kind of blow past it because it's at the very beginning of the story and it's going to get like more abstract and, and interesting as things develop. But the very first thing that Jesus says back to him gets right to the heart of this entire story and what it's all about. So he comes to Jesus, what good deed must I do? And Jesus' first response 
It's kind of weird. He goes, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. This is a way of Jesus, and all of the gospel accounts that have this story in it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them have some version of the same question back to him. And the essence of the question is, what do you mean by good? And that's the question. Think about that. This guy comes to Jesus and goes, hey, I want to have eternal life. What good thing do I have to do? And Jesus goes, well, what do you mean by good? How do you know what's good? And Jesus gives a hint right here. He goes, well, there's only one actual source of goodness. There's only one frame of reference from which you can get the idea of goodness. But he starts by putting the question to him. How do you know what good is? What do you mean when you say good? And so before we even get into the story, I want to give you guys an opportunity to think about that question. How do you know what good is? How do you decide if something's good or not? I want you to, let's do it this way. Start, we'll take a few minutes here, and just start in your head without thinking too hard about it and without like going really deep and definitely without trying to think like what does the pastor want me to think is good? I just want you to start assembling a quick list in your head of some really good things in your life. What are some things that are good? My family, my cat, Cupcake. Anybody yet? That would be crazy. Like, does anybody in the room have a cat named Cupcake? That would have been one of those moments where it's like your first time at church and your cat's named Cupcake and you're like, oh my gosh, this church is amazing. <laughs> that guy spoke like he knows me. Just a guess. One of you has a cat named Cupcake, or you will. And so, you, this, <laughs> back to the center, everybody. All right, start thinking of some good things. And again, think everything. My breakfast this morning was pretty good. My family is a good thing in my life. I like my job. My job is good. My pets, whatever. Start listing things in your head that are good to you. And then ask, how do I know? How do I determine what's good and what's not? Some things came to your mind and you decided they don't belong on the list. Or you started making a list and something else occurred to you that kind of jumped right to the top of the list. How do you create and sort that list? What's your frame of reference for good and bad? How do you know what is actually good? Now, another question we could ask, this kind of a question for a different sermon, is you could take that list you just made and then you could ask, how do I actually spend my time and energy and resources and does it match up with the list I made of things that I think are good? Because that might actually determine more about what you actually think is good, right? But that's for a different sermon. For now, just think about this. Goodness. Jesus gives a huge hint. He goes, how do you know what's good? Let me tell you something. There's only one ground of goodness. And as, if you notice there, he doesn't say there's only one thing that is good. He says there's only one who is good. Then he just answers the guy's question in the most kind of mundane way ever. He goes, if you want to enter the age to come, if you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. And so the guy responds very reasonably, well, which commandments should I keep? And then Jesus, interestingly, he, he gives the second half of the Ten Commandments, what's sometimes called the second table of the Ten Commandments. And these are all the commandments that primarily have to do with how you treat other people. So he says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And then this last one's not from the Ten Commandments, this one's actually from Leviticus 19, and it's kind of like the summary of the whole second table of the Ten Commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' response is like saying, just do all the stuff that your mom and dad probably told you to do. This is an upright, religiously solid Jewish guy. He goes, do all the stuff that ordinary obedient people do. Be obedient to God in all of the ordinary ways. And then this response is kind of staggering because his response is just, all these I've kept. 
And I like the ESV because in Greek, the word all is first as well, and it has this big emphasis. Like He's like, I've done all of that. What do I still lack? Again, I won't belabor this point, but there's a tendency, especially for us as Protestant Christians in our kind of tradition, to say, well, this guy's, this guy's totally lying. He says he's kept all the commandments, but that's not possible. So he must be like, secretly he's got all this sin, and he wants to present himself as really righteous. I sincerely don't think that's how you're supposed to read this. thing is, a Jewish understanding of how to keep the law did not necessitate that you always did everything perfectly right. To keep the commandments just means that in, in general you do it, you do all the stuff you're supposed to do, and then if you make a mistake, there's a sacrifice or a ritual that you're supposed to perform to take care of that. That's why Paul in Philippians can say that according to the law, he was blameless before he knew God. Doesn't mean he never made a mistake. Just meant he's a guy who follows the law. And I think you're supposed to take this claim at face value. Jesus goes, obey the law. And he gives them this kind of representative sample of all the ways you're supposed to treat other people. And he goes, I've done that. Doesn't mean he was perfect. Doesn't mean he never slipped up. He just means, no, I'm, I'm obedient. I take the law seriously. And the revealing thing isn't that there's like some secret sin that he's holding back. The revealing thing here is that he still recognizes that that's not doing it. You notice that? He goes, what do I still lack? He's been building up this obedience, stacking up this list of all the good stuff he's done correctly, and he still feels like there's something missing. So he comes to Jesus and says, what is it? What's the missing piece? And what's so amazing about this is he's probably looking for some kind of like esoteric secret knowledge, like here's the, the you, want, you know, Jesus is gonna like look left and right and go, all right, everybody else get away. You, you're, you're obedient enough, you're good enough, I'm gonna give you the real secret. Here's what you have to do to enter eternal life. And instead, Jesus first just tells him, just be obedient, be faithful in the ordinary ways. And then he says, I've done that. What else is there? And this is the hardest part of the passage because Jesus just answers him. And it's an answer that he doesn't like and it's an answer that we're not gonna like. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's kind of the tragic ending. Tim Keller talks about how this moment is almost like Jesus has told him, all right, do the commandments, you know, do the second table of the law. And the guy says, I've done that. And it's almost like Jesus' response is like, okay, you've done the commandments. Let's just talk about commandment number one. See that? What's commandment number one, everybody? I don't know why I ask these questions because you guys give like the absolute creepiest responses. <laughs> it's always like all these whispers that are slightly off time with each other and not only can I not understand you, but it's deeply disturbing too. <laughs> I, did, I did hear some right answers though. The first commandment is no other gods, right? Commandment number one, first of the 10 commandments, no other gods. Now Jesus told the guy the last five and love your neighbor as yourself. He goes, I've done all that. Jesus goes, okay. And then he puts his finger directly on the false God in this young man's life. Remember his first question, how do you know what's good? There's only one who's actually good. Jesus is here exposing for this guy what he actually thinks of as good. What's the highest good in your life? Look again at what Jesus offered him. You want treasure in heaven? You gotta get rid of your treasure on earth. And so this guy, what's good? What's the good in my life? He has two things put before him. You can have treasure in heaven 
And for this man, or you can have treasure on earth, you have to pick. And he goes away sorrowful. And what's amazing is Matthew tells us exactly why he's sorrowful. You could substitute the word because in place of that for. He went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Jesus is asking him to give up a lot. There's another preacher, Alistair McGrath, who says that this moment is like somebody who needs surgery desperately, but after hearing what the surgery and the recovery is going to entail, decides not to get it. Can you imagine that? Some of you have probably experienced this literally. You know you, you have a, a, a great need in your life. There's something that you have to have dealt with. And you go and you get the surgical consult and the surgeon tells you, all right, this is really important. It's going to improve your life. It's going to, maybe it's even going to save you. But here's the deal. It's going to be incredibly painful. It's going to be a really long recovery time. You're going to need a lot of help. And it's going to be months and months and months before you're back to normal. And maybe you won't exactly be normal ever again. But you need this nonetheless. Now imagine being in that position and going, I know I need this but I can't do it. I can't handle it. You'd go away sorrowful, wouldn't you? That's this man. He's been offered treasure in heaven or treasure on earth. And he doesn't go away like defiant or angry or like, this is a dumb command. I shouldn't have to do that. Because here's the thing. Jesus isn't telling him that he is like, there's a command he's missing. There is no command in the Old Testament law that says you have to sell everything you own and give it to the poor. So Jesus isn't telling him like, oh, you actually missed this one little part of Deuteronomy where you have to give away everything you possess. It's way bigger than that. Jesus is going, your idea of what's good is fundamentally off. And so what you have to do is look that false god in the face and get rid of it. And then you'll follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. But this guy's like the person hearing that surgical consult and saying, I just can't do it. And so when he leaves, he leaves sad. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And some of you have probably heard an explanation of this camel eye of the needle thing that goes something like this. This camel into the eye of the needle thing doesn't actually mean what it sounds like it means. It doesn't mean like a literal impossibility or something that ridiculous. See, in the ancient world, every city had a big wall around it, and there were multiple gates you could get through, and there was this one really small gate called the eye of the needle, and that gate stayed open even after the other gates had closed. So people could walk through it, but if you had to get a camel through it, it was extremely difficult. And in fact, this is where the illustration gets really powerful. The only way for a camel to get through it was for the camel to kneel down. And so if the camel could humble itself and get onto its knees, then it can make it through the eye of the needle. That sounds good, right? Here's the problem. There is literally zero evidence that that's true. <laughs> zero. There is nothing like that. No, no single primary source that points to anything like that in the ancient world. So that just kind of popped up a couple hundred years ago and has been repeated over and over and over again. But there's no historical basis for it. And more importantly, you don't have to know anything about history to know that that kind of doesn't make sense. Because look at the disciples' response. The disciples don't hear him say this camel eye of the needle thing and then go like, wow, I guess, I guess the rich are going to really have to humble themselves then. They look at it and they're astonished. And they go, then who can possibly be saved? They hear it as Jesus metaphorically expressing an impossibility. Jesus goes, for a rich person, 
to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Man, be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And Jesus and his disciples go, and who can be saved? And this is probably particularly astonishing to them because in much of the ancient world and much of the world today, to have material wealth was considered a sign of blessing from God. So for it to be kind of flipped in this way, that now it's being presented as this great difficulty, this great barrier to connection with God, is stunning to them. And their reaction is, man, then who can possibly be saved? And at this point, there's like a, a very kind of easy way that we could be comforted because the truth is, like I said, there's no Old Testament commandment, no New Testament commandment that says you must sell everything you own and give it to the poor. So Jesus isn't here like creating some rule that every single person has to follow if they want to follow him. The main thing he's done is he's identified the false God in this guy's life. He's identified the greatest good in this person's kind of hierarchy of goods. And he said, you have to put that aside so that God can have his proper place. So it's not really just about money. It's actually about identifying your false God. And so all of us kind of breathe a little sigh of relief typically with that. Because most of us are like, I really hope this isn't going to end with me having to sell everything I own. You know what I mean? Here's the problem, though. For you, for me, for almost all of us in the room today, just by virtue of where you live and when you live, money is your false god. Now, it's at least, it's at least in your top three. Let's put it that way, right? If you were to create a list of the things that tempt you, that distract you, that tend to take your attention away from God or that you tend to prioritize above God in your life, if you live in the modern Western world, money's gonna be on your top three, almost certainly. And so we're gonna talk in a little bit about kind of the, the idea of false gods in general, the idea of idolatry in general. But in order to do this passage justice, living in the most affluent time and place in human history, we have to talk about the direct thing he means. I mean, look at Jesus turns to his disciples and says, man, the materially wealthy have a huge barrier between them and entering in to the kingdom of God. And the New Testament says this consistently. I mean, if you remember from earlier in the series, back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about money and he calls it a master, right? He goes, you can only serve one master. And it's not a tool for you to use. It's a master that you serve. It's a master that uses you. And you want to think about the rich young ruler in light of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you can either serve money or God, right? But probably the harshest and most like, in some ways, not, not harshest, scariest passage about this in the entire New Testament, in my opinion, comes in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is Paul's letter to a young church leader named Timothy. First he says this, which is very positive. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. You hear echoes of Jesus' teaching in this, right? Because Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth because that's just going to wear out and fade away and get stolen. It doesn't last. Instead, store treasure in heaven. Paul says a very similar thing here. You can't take this stuff with you. So don't prioritize it. Don't obsess over it. Instead, strive for contentment, godliness with contentment. He goes, all we need is food and clothing and we'll be content with that. Then he gets scary. But those who desire to be rich, and just pause there for a second. This is what's scary to me personally. He doesn't say those who are rich. He says those who desire to be rich. 
fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now what's so important about this passage is Paul is not saying money is like arbitrarily worse than other things and if you obsess over money, you're gonna get like a lightning bolt just because it's about money. This is a warning. He's telling Timothy, tell your people, warn the people in your church about how dangerous this is. That if you chase after money, if you desire to be rich, there's danger there. Look at all the language of danger, temptation, snare, senseless and harmful, ruin and destruction, evil, being pierced with pangs. I mean, the entire thing is just like, hey, because I love you, beware of this. This thing will eat you alive if you chase after it. And look at the language at the end here. What happens to people who crave money? They wander away from the faith. Think about the rich young ruler. Here he is before Jesus himself, on his knees saying, what do I need? And Jesus goes, I'll tell you. You gotta get rid of this giant barrier. You gotta get rid of this false god. And what does that man do? He wanders away from the faith. He goes away sorrowful because he had many possessions. The Bible consistently warns that the love of money, the pursuit of money, the desire to be rich, which again, just so you guys know, this is in me 100%. There's no finger pointing happening here this morning. It's in all of us in, this, in our society. Paul is saying, along with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, many other places in the New Testament, beware, because this is dangerous. So here's the thing. Just to be practical, I know from my own life that when you start thinking about this, it can be kind of crippling because you, can, you either kind of have to like shut it off completely and go like, I'm just not going to think about that. I'll come back next Sunday and we'll talk about something that doesn't have to do with this. You either have to shut it off or it just makes you so incredibly guilty. You just feel terrible. You're like, that is me. I do. I, I am obsessed with money. Because by the way, we talked about this when we talked in our series on idolatry, but you can desire to be rich or you can have a love of money without having a lot of money. This, doesn't, this isn't just about people who are wealthy. This could be the person who's like the wealthy materialist or it could be the person who's constantly anxious about money and never feels like they have enough. Both those people are having the same problem. It's a love of money and a pursuit of money. And so you can end up just feeling like guilt-ridden and the problem is usually, in my experience, that doesn't lead to any kind of actual positive change or growth in your life. You'll feel guilty for as long as you feel guilty, and then you'll start to feel better and nothing will have changed. And so here's my one piece of practical, real advice about this topic. Because I don't want to preclude the idea that God is gonna call some of you to literally sell everything and give it to the poor. He might, and if he does, you should listen. But for most of us, I think the takeaway is don't do nothing just because you can't do everything. You know what I mean by that? Just because you recognize in yourself, I don't have the spiritual strength to like slash my budget. You know, Zacchaeus only gives away half of his money. That's still pretty hard, right? <laughs> you know, I don't have it in me to give away half of what I own, to give away everything I own. Don't do nothing. 
I'll give you an example from my own life. I, the, I, I, I'm a teaching pastor here, but I'm also the mission pastor here. So I've had the benefit and the blessing of getting to travel to a lot of developing countries and spend time with brothers and sisters in truly, truly poor environments. And every time you do that, it's very convicting when you come home, and especially the first couple times. I mean, I still remember when my wife and I in 2012 went on our first kind of big overseas trip. We went to Cambodia and spent a, a few weeks there and uh, encountered extreme, extreme poverty. And we came home, and I remember the night we got back, we drove to In-N-Out over by the outlets. And we're like, you know, we're all jet-lagged and just trying to stay up till bedtime, and we're sitting in the parking lot eating these, like, big, delicious burgers, you know, and watching all the people at the outlets come in and out of stores. And I remember just feeling crushed, just being like, we have so much, and we're so selfish with it. I'm so selfish. We went back home, and at that time, we lived in this tiny little, very modest apartment, I remember going into it and being like, this place is so huge. We have so much stuff in here. And like, my brothers and sisters in Cambodia have nothing. I should just be selling all of this and giving them all the money. I felt so much guilt. And everything I looked at in my life was like that. I'm like, I don't need a, I don't need a smartphone. We have two cars. We don't need two cars. We can get by with one car. I don't need all these different pairs of running shoes. Like I just, every single thing in your life you could look at and be like, I don't, I, I'm, I'm selfish. I'm materialistic. I should get rid of all of it. And guess what I actually changed in my life? Nothing. I felt really, really bad for a few weeks, and then it faded away, and my life was exactly the same. And so truly, I mean this with all sincerity, I don't want anyone to leave this service feeling guilty for nothing. It would be much better if all of us took a look at our lives and said, what's a small change I could make to move me in the right direction I know that I'm too far, all of us. I know we're too far on the side of loving money. And I'm not, I'm not right now at a place where I'm going to sell everything I own and give it to the poor. What could I do to move myself in the right direction? What I should have done is adjusted my budget to set aside 20, 30, 40 bucks a month that I'm going to give directly to the needs in Cambodia that affected me so greatly. That's what I wish I had done that day. So I want to invite you to consider some change that you could make to your life to remove the kind of chains of this materialist desire that all of us have in our culture. Say, how can I kind of lessen that burden on myself? How can I get rid of some of this? How can I start to remove that from me, that false God from my life, in a way that I'll actually do? So think about that, consider it, pray about it this week, and ask yourself, what kind of change could I actually make? Don't do nothing just because the burden seems so incredibly great and insurmountable to you. Because ultimately, really, and like I said earlier, this passage isn't just about money. That really is Jesus' focus here. But what he's exposed in this young man is his ultimate source of good. What does he think is good? His money, his wealth, the things he's accumulated. So Jesus says, you gotta identify that and you gotta get rid of it. You gotta learn how to put it where it belongs. Because here's the thing, all of us, and again, we talked about this, believe it or not, it was all the way back in January, I believe. We talked, oh no, what, when, did we do the, when did we do the idolatry series? Time has gotten weird after COVID, maybe it was after Easter. When we talked about idolatry, we talked about the fact that the things in your life that you are prone to worship, that you are prone to put in the place of God, it's not like they're all evil things. There's a really good chance that they're good things. They usually are. They're just lesser goods. And like Jesus exposed at the very beginning of this passage, when we become disconnected from the thing that makes them good, from the way that we know they're good, we have a tendency to put them higher than they belong in our lives. 
So for this young man, it was wealth. It was the things he possessed. What is it for you? What's the the chief good in your life? I can tell you without question, I know what it is in mine, and it is a good thing. It's a gift. For me, it's my family. It's my wife and my three kids. And you know that's not a bad thing. That's not like an evil thing that I have to purge from my life. That's a good gift that God gave me. The problem is they are always perpetually going to be in competition for the chief good in my life. And guess what? I'm not a better husband or a better father when I put them above God as the chief good in my life. What I need to do is learn to have God's goodness grow and grow and grow in my life so that lesser goods go to their proper place in that hierarchy in my life. Now, here's the thing. Again, you could finish this sermon feeling crippled and going like, well, then what are we supposed to do? Like, I can't possibly change this stuff. We're all just like enslaved to these false gods, to these lesser goods, and we can't get out from under it. I mean, Jeremiah at one point says, can a leopard change its spots? So then can you who are evil learn to do good. It's going like, you becoming good with the evil in your heart is as likely as a leopard getting rid of his spots. And you're in good company if you feel that way. I mean, that's the disciples. They go, then who can be saved? And if that's where the conversation ended, this would be a really hopeless sermon, right? But there's another verse. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, how many of you knew that that's the context that this verse is in? It's a very famous verse. With God, all things are possible. And Jesus is talking about rich people being saved. Thank God, right? See, the rich young man, it wasn't like he was going to be able to get rid of enough stuff to suddenly earn God's favor or to be the kind of person who deserved eternal life. That's not the point. Jesus said, sell everything you, belong, everything you own, follow me, have treasure in heaven. That was a barrier to him having the kind of connection to Jesus that he needed to have the eternal life that he wanted. See, you can't be good enough. With man, it's impossible. You can't give away enough to earn God's favor. Somebody else has to be good for you. And the beauty of the Christian story is that the one who is good for you is the very ground of goodness itself. Jesus started off this whole thing by saying, there's only one who's good. And in Christianity, we say, goodness incarnate. Goodness itself, the very foundation of the idea of goodness. How do you know what's good? You compare it to the ultimate good. And the ultimate good took on flesh, came to earth, and died for you, died for me, so that those who come to him in faith and entrust ourselves to him have that eternal life that the rich young man was seeking, have that treasure in heaven. Because who's the treasure in heaven, you guys? There's not going to be a big giant box of gold coins waiting for you there. Treasure in heaven is goodness itself, or I should say, goodness himself. Look at how Paul talks about this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. How beautiful is that? The Bible says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's a way of saying it's all his. It was all made for him, through him, by him. It's all his. He holds it together. Everything belongs to him. He's the truly rich one. And Paul says in one of many different images for what Jesus did for us, he says this rich one sets aside his riches 
in order to lift up the spiritually bankrupt, the spiritually impoverished, that we might become rich. One of the biggest problems with material wealth is that it makes us blind to our spiritual poverty. Paul says, you're poor when you come to Jesus. The rich young ruler didn't know that about himself. You come to Jesus poor, and you find someone who owns everything but set aside all of his riches in order that you who are poor might be made spiritually rich in him. Is that good news or what? That's incredible. So here's the thing. That's the truth of salvation in Christ, that you who are spiritually poor, you come to Jesus, he has done everything. He has spent everything. He has been good on your behalf so that in him you find true goodness. You find that treasure in heaven. And if in this life you want to be free from the tyranny of wealth, that's what John Chrysostom said. He called it the the tyranny of wealth, that wealth is a tyrant. You want to be free from the tyranny of wealth? You want to be free from the tyranny of other lesser gods? The key isn't, first and foremost, to make yourself hate those lesser goods. The key is what you need to do, what I need to do, is have our love for Christ grow. I just want to picture it like a balloon where your love for Christ, your knowledge of his goodness grows and expands such that it crowds out lesser goods, pushes them down where they belong. Many of those things God wants you to have. He wants you to love your family, but to love them in a way that's appropriate, that's right, that's best for them and best for you. And the way to do that is to have your love for God, your knowledge of his goodness grow and expand so that it crowds out lesser goods and pushes them down where they belong. I want to end by considering this parable from Matthew 13. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What's the difference between this man and the rich young ruler? This hypothetical guy in the parable also goes away. The story ends with him leaving the thing he found. But how does he feel? He's joyful. The rich young man goes away sorrowful. This guy goes away joyful. The joyful man's going to sell all his stuff. That's what he's on his way to do. The rich young man is going away to keep his stuff, but he's sad. What's the difference? The difference is that the man in Jesus' parable has recognized the value of the treasure. See the difference? Jesus goes, you want treasure in heaven? Get rid of your treasure on earth. The rich young ruler goes, oh, I got to keep the treasure on earth. And he goes away sad. The guy in Jesus' parable sees the thing that in the parable represents the kingdom of heaven. He sees the treasure and he says, this is so valuable that I can't wait to sell everything I have to get it. It's not like he's gritting his teeth or out of some sense of duty and obligation going like, oh, I, gotta, I guess I gotta sell all this stuff because the Bible says I have to. The treasure is so good that he goes, I can't wait to sell everything I own. I just gotta get this, I have to have it. The difference between this guy and the rich young ruler is that the guy in Jesus' parable sees the value of the treasure in heaven. So may we, as Christians, grow in our understanding and our knowledge and our appreciation of the goodness of our King. That's who your treasure in heaven is, is Jesus. And the bigger he gets in your mind, the more his goodness expands, the more you see him as he truly is, 
the more that's going to relativize and shrink all of these other things in your life that clamor for your attention and your devotion so that we can be people who, it's not a matter of gritting our teeth and trying to make sacrifices. It's what, do I, what does God want me to do? What can I do for this good one who has saved me, who has rescued me, who set aside his own riches in order to lift me up? So may we all grow in our knowledge and understanding of the goodness of Jesus. Amen? I'd love to invite you to stand with me as we take communion.